We are continuing with our study through the life of Jesus across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've been camping out for a few weeks in what is undoubtedly the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount delivered by Jesus Christ himself. You know, it it struck me this week that if I were to teach on any subject, just with my knowledge and my opinions, if I were to preach for 45 minutes on it, you could take whatever I taught on something and you could condense it. It would be perfectly valid for you to say, hey, you know, I missed the sermon. Can you just give me like the five-minute gist of it? And you could condense my wisdom down pretty easily to five minutes. When Jesus preaches, the whole Sermon on the Mount takes about 20 minutes probably, 20, 25 minutes. And it takes us weeks. You could spend a lifetime just unpacking what Jesus said because it's that profound, it's that deep. Whereas everything we say can be summarized and cut and edited down to just the important parts. Everything Jesus says can be expanded upon tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold because there's so much there. It's that challenging, it's that difficult, it's that mind-blowing. Nobody ever has, nobody ever will teach at the level that Jesus Christ taught at. The Sermon on the Mount has two purposes. If you're not yet a believer, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive you to Jesus. It's to make you realize that you could never be a good enough person on your own to measure up to God's standards. If you are a believer, the Sermon on the Mount reveals the direction your life is headed now that Jesus is in your life and you're following him. It reveals the character that the Holy Spirit wants to develop in you as he works to make you more like Jesus. We're never going to fully get there in this body, but we will when we arrive in the presence of the Lord after this life. So this message tells us what direction we're going in, where we're aimed, who we're becoming as children of God. And over the next two weeks, we're going to hear Jesus speak on some of the most divisive issues in the church today. Now, I'm not talking about whether we use Splenda or sugar or cream or milk or powder. No, it's not that. He's going to be speaking on hypocrisy, judging other people, and distinguishing between false prophets and true prophets. False teachers, true teachers. If you haven't figured it out yet, people freak out out when you talk about any kind of judging any kind of judging so what does jesus have to say on the subject of judging we're going to find out today let's begin we're going to read the first two verses of matthew chapter 7 first two verses jesus says judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. The word judge in the Greek there is the word krino, and it's really important because it doesn't just mean judge as in discern or evaluate. It means judge to the point of condemnation. Do you realize that you can judge without condemnation? I think this is a huge distinction. Most of our world would say, hey, if you're judging me, then you're condemning me. But you can judge without condemnation. And Jesus himself did this. In one of the stories that floors me every time I read it because Jesus is so brilliant. He's so deep. He's so profound. Remember, there's a story in the Bible where a woman is brought before Jesus who's been caught in the very act of adultery. The Jewish leaders bring her in front of Jesus and they say, the law says this woman should be stoned for the sin she's been caught in. What do you say? And Jesus brilliantly says, 
Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. It's brilliant. And if you know the story, you know that it says they all filed out one by one. But what's important is what Jesus says to the woman after everyone has left. It says this in the word. It says, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So he's saying, has no one judged you to the point of condemnation? Has no one crenoed you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I crino you. Neither do I judge you to the point of condemnation. And I've personally encountered many people, I'm sure you have too, who seem to believe that the story ends there. Story ends there. And the moral of the story is Jesus is cool with whatever this woman is doing and whatever any of us are doing because he doesn't judge anybody. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he doesn't condemn anybody. The whole last line reads like this. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It is the absolute perfect picture of judging a person's sin without condemning the person. Right there in that sentence, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Your sin is not acceptable, but I don't condemn you for it. You need to stop your sin, but you're not beyond redemption. You're not a hopeless case. Jesus doesn't attack her personally. He confronts her sin. He doesn't say, you're a terrible person. You're past redemption, a hopeless case. He judges her actions with truth without condemning her. It's remarkable. Write this down. It's your first fill-in. We're not called to judge to condemnation, but rather identification and restoration. So we're not called to judge to condemnation, but we are, we're going to find out, called to judge to identification, so to identify the sin, and restoration with the goal of restoration. So the goal in judging sin in other believers we're going to find out is to identify the sin, to point it out, and the goal is restoration. The goal is not catching a person. The goal is not condemning a person. The goal is not calling them a terrible person. It's saying the goal is that this behavior stops. This self-destructive path that you're on stops. The goal is restoration. That's how Jesus deals with the woman caught in adultery. He clearly identifies her sin and tells her to repent of it. He judges her to restoration as well when he comforts her with the words, neither do I condemn you. I love what Paul wrote in Galatians. Paul wrote, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, so if he's overtaken by any sin, you who are spiritual, so if you think you're spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's good advice, isn't it? It says, have restoration as the goal. Before you even get into it, restoration is the goal. Be gentle. And consider how you would want to be treated if you were caught in sin. Because this may shock you. You might sin at some point in the future. It could happen. It could really happen. We've spoken before about how restoration can't happen without repentance. You can't go straight to restoration without repentance if you are the offender. That applies to each of us as individuals as we deal with God. There's no restoration from God until we repent. When you recognize sin in another person, there are two steps that come before repentance and restoration, and those two steps are judgment and rebuke. So we're going to have some fill-ins here. This is how it works. First, we judge the sin. 
We identify it. So what that means is we bring it into the light, not in front of everybody, but in front of that person. We judge, we know the word of God, and we can see, man, you, you are trapped. You are ensnared in this sin. Let me shine a light on this for you so you can see it for what it is. That's identifying the sin. That's judging to identification. The second step you see is we rebuke the brother and sister. That's not being mean. A rebuke is simply saying, this is the sin, there it is. You need to stop. You need to stop. This isn't doing anything good for you. You're hurting yourself. You're damaging your relationship with the Lord. Stop. That's what it means to rebuke. Thirdly, the intended next step is that the brother or sister repents. That they see it and they say, yeah, I I can see that. The word of God says what I'm doing is sin. You've you've shown me. I repent. I'm going to stop. I'm going to change. And then fourthly, the brother or sister is restored. And that's how the process is supposed to go. We judge the sin. We identify it. We call the person to repent. They repent. They are restored. And we move on in health and in love and in grace. That's the step-by-step process we're going to see in God's word in multiple instances throughout the scriptures. When Jesus says in these first couple of verses that we should not judge, he's really saying we shouldn't condemn people. And there's a reason for that. This is very interesting. The reason is because we have no idea what's going on in a person's heart. We have no idea what is going on in a person's heart. Only God knows the heart. We cannot judge a person's motives or the intent of their heart. Jesus never once tells us to judge a person's motives, ever. What he actually calls us to do is he says, you know, you need to separate the sin from the person and you deal with the sin. You deal with the sin. You don't say you must be a horrible person. You must you deal with the sin is what you deal with. You don't condemn. We're going to talk about this more next week, but Jesus is going to tell us to essentially be fruit inspectors is what the word points to again and again. He says, judge the fruit in people's lives, not their intention, not their motives. Judge the fruit in their lives, not their intentions or motives. You deal with the fruit. It's not as confrontational. It's not attacking the person. It's attacking their decisions that they've made. There are two issues that Jesus is discussing here in these first two verses. He's talking about judging others, but he's also talking about the principle of sowing and reaping. Principle of sowing and reaping, I would suggest, humbly, is pretty much inarguable. The principle simply says, you will reap what you sow in every area of your life. And if you're a human being, then you know this is true. Jesus isn't saying that if you judge harshly, you're going to be judged harshly by him. He's not saying that. He's saying if you judge other people harshly, other people will judge you harshly. If you are unmerciful to other people, other people will be unmerciful to you. In Luke's gospel account of this same message, he records Jesus giving a few more examples Jesus says, condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You will generally receive from other people what you pour into them. Whether it's positive or negative, argumentative or peaceful, We know this is true. I know it's a bit more involved, but the philosophy of karma is essentially based on the idea of sowing and reaping, cause and effect, which which we know at its core is, is kind of observable throughout the universe. And that's what makes the cross of Christ so remarkable. Because we live in a cause and an effect 
universe. We live in a cause and effect universe. And so it's easy to understand why people would look at it and develop a religious philosophy around the idea of cause and effect. Hey, I'm nice to people. They're nice back to me. Let's just expand on that. And that, that's what the philosophy of karma is really all about. But then into this, into this comes the cross of Christ and runs completely against the laws that govern the entire universe. Jesus interrupts the universe. And instead of us receiving the effect of our sins, we receive grace. We do not reap what we sow. When it comes to grace and salvation, we instead reap what Jesus has sown for us. He completely interrupts the system of cause and effect. That's what makes grace so amazing. And that's what we receive instead. Amazing, overflowing, overwhelming grace. But Jesus expects us to remember that we cannot go through life expecting everybody else to offer us the same grace that he has. He expects us to understand that. You know, in the spirit of a a loving heavenly father, there's a side of this where it's like a dad sitting down with his son or his daughter and just saying, I need to teach you something about how the world works. I need to share this with you because it's going to make your life a lot easier. Here's what I need you to understand, son. Here's what I need you to understand, daughter. Everything comes back around. Everything comes back around. How many of us only in adulthood began to realize that if we wanted to have great friends, we had to be a great friend? There might be some of us that haven't realized that yet. How many of us only realized as adults that, that if we wanted people in our lives who would drop everything to help us with something, we had to be the kind of friend who would drop everything to help them? cause and effect. I read a great story about a pastor who had someone come up to him after a church service one time and say, you know, your church isn't very friendly. And I love the pastor's response. He said, have you tried being friendly? <laughs> you know? So now you know what I'm going to say if anybody ever asked me that. Your church is friendly. Have you tried being friendly? That's a crazy idea. Crazy idea. Sowing and reaping. Here we see people have written entire books about what Jesus says in less than 20 seconds. I always laugh when I see this, like in the business world, I have discovered this amazing principle. If you treat your employees well, they will work better for you. Wow, how inventive of you. Sounds a lot like something somebody said 2,000 years ago. I'm I'm probably confused. I'm not that smart. Jesus is profound. He gives us insight. And, and, And when it comes to relationships, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to work, when it comes to family, children, every single one of us is sowing something into every one of those areas. We're all sowing something. And we're all going to reap what we sow. Now, if your response to me saying that is, oh, crap, then you might need to evaluate your life in the worship time we're going to have after this message. I'm joking, but not really. You you really might want to do that. When we talk about sowing and reaping, if your response is, oh, no, then it means God might be saying, hey, yeah, you need to think about what you're sowing into your relationships, what you're sowing into your relationship with the Lord, what you're sowing into your job, because those are seeds that are going to produce a harvest at some point, and you want good things to come out of the ground when the harvest time comes around. Now Jesus is going to speak more on the subject of judging other people. Judging other people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought thought the Bible was clear that we should never to judge anyone ever. 
especially me. I thought that was like Jesus' thing. I hear that all the time. I see it on TV. I see it in Facebook comments. I hear people talk about it in conversations. You know, Jesus wouldn't want us to judge others, which is a nice idea. The only problem with that is the Bible. Jesus is going to teach us how to judge the right way. All the way back in the Old Testament in Leviticus, I stumbled across this this heavy verse. Leviticus, books of the law. God said this. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What's that verse saying? Write, Write this down. The verse is saying it is hating, hating your brother or sister in Christ to see them in sin and allow them to stay there. That's what God is saying. He's saying it's not okay for you to hate your brother or sister by allowing them to stay in sin when you can see it and you know the destruction that sin wreaks in our lives. You know that sin produces nothing good. You see it in your neighbor who's a believer and you do nothing. He says it's the same as you might as well hate them. That's like hating them by refusing to confront them. He says, don't put up with it. Confront it. Not out of concern for your own holiness, but out of love for them. Deal with it. And that verse is so important because it's saying it's not love to see destructive sin at work in each other's lives and turn a blind eye and claim that you're acting in grace. That's not grace. That's like a doctor saying, you know, yeah, I got this patient back in the room. His, his arm is definitely broken, you know. But I'm going to tell him he's fine because I think that would bless him more. It's, it's, it's madness. This logic would never work in any other area of life. This is the spiritual equivalent of that. Just as you would say to the doctor, do you hate this person? Why would you do that to them? Same is true for us as believers. Do you, do you hate this person? You know they're on a path to destruction. And you're going to say, oh, it's grace. It's grace for me to let them walk off the cliff. It's not grace. Come on. I think Jesus would say, he'd say to us, don't lie about your real motivation. If you love them, don't leave them suffering. The reality is we're not really doing what's best for them. We're doing what's best for us because we don't want to have the confrontation or the awkward conversation. So I'll do what's best for me, and I'll cop out by saying that it's grace in action. That's not grace. It's not love. You know, we've been taught not to judge to condemnation. Now Jesus is going to teach us the next aspect of judging his way. Write this down. We're called to judge without hypocrisy. We're called to judge without hypocrisy. And you need to know that in all of this, Jesus is talking about judging amongst believers. This is important because the Bible teaches explicitly that we are not to judge those outside the church. We're not to judge non-believers. We have no place to do that. That's God's business. The Apostle Paul says that explicitly. The Bible does, however, teach that we are to judge each other within the church, inside the church. The idea is that we all represent Jesus when we take on the title Christian. We all become representatives of Jesus on the earth. And so we have an obligation to make sure that as church, you and I, the people of God, are representing him in a way that's honoring to him. The bottom line is that the church, the people of God, honoring him rightly is more important than our hurt feelings or our ego or our pride 
or being offended because we might be confronted about our sin. The honor of Jesus Christ is more important. It's more important that we don't run around carrying his name and acting in a way that might as well be spitting on his face. The honor of Jesus is more important than our feelings. Don't judge to condemnation. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, judge without hypocrisy. Let's read in verse three. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. Underline these next two words. And then, and then, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I love this because Jesus is being funny. He's being humorous. That's a funny idea to picture a guy with like a plank in his eye saying to the guy with a speck in his eye, you need to get that looked at. You need to get that taken care of. You should see a doctor. And the first thing I want to point out is where we get this wrong. Because I encounter people again all the time on the subject of judging who read this. And their takeaway from this is we've all got issues, so none of us should judge each other. Would you, would you agree? That's generally how you hear this interpreted. We've all got issues, so none of us should judge each other. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He doesn't stop at verse 4. He doesn't stop by saying, look, a plank is in your own eye. He says that what he wants us to do is deal with the plank in our own eye. Deal with our own issue. Repent. Change. Why? So that, and then, you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you understand that nothing good is happening if you stand next to me with a speck in your eye, I stand next to you with a plank in my eye, and we go, oh, well. Nobody's getting better. Nobody's getting help. How in the world could we think that that's what Jesus means because we're still both standing there with things in our eyes. We've both got a problem. As though Jesus is saying, good, that's the way I want it. I just want you all to know you've all got a problem. I don't actually want to deal with the problem. Just want you all to know you have a problem. That's not a solution. (laughs) Let's write some things down here. The solution is to deal with our own sin issues so that we can effectively help our brothers and sisters deal with theirs. The solution is both of us being healed from our sin. Not both of us ignoring our sin. That's not any kind of solution. Here's how this looks practically in, in, in Luke's gospel. It records Jesus saying this, being humorous again, I think brilliantly. Jesus says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? Can the blind lead the blind? It's like giving a blind person a blind seeing eye dog. It's just a terrible idea, you know? They're both going to die in traffic. As we sort of flesh this out in, in our own context, this is what it means. It means the guy who's struggling with internet porn cannot help the other guy who's struggling with internet porn. Because that guy's going to call up the guy and be like, hey, man, I messed up. I looked at something. And the guy's going to be like, yeah, me too. Nobody's getting better. Nobody's being helped in that situation. The guy who has repented from that and is walking in daily victory over it, he can help that man because he's dealt with the plank in his own eye. Jesus doesn't say, because you've dealt with the plank, now you know you shouldn't judge him. He says, no, now that you've dealt with your plank, now you can help him. 
get the speck out of his own eye. Well, you know, it's, it's the content that's really important when it comes to helping people. You, you don't have to actually do it. I've read a great book on this subject. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're a hypocrite. The solution is to repent and stop being a hypocrite. That's the solution. You know, one time I was counseling a guy about a specific sin issue, and he pushed back by, by saying, you know, I know there's got to be sin in some area of your life, so why should I listen to you? I mean, you, you hear that all the time. And, and I said, you know, you're right, there is. And I'm dealing with it. I'm working on it. But in this area we're talking about right now, I am right with God. And I can see clearly. And I can help you because I'm right with God in this area. And that's the idea. The idea is not that none of us should ever confront sin in each other's lives because we all have sin that we're dealing with. The idea is that we obtain the ability to see and judge with discernment and wisdom in the areas where we walk in holiness with the Lord. And the desire of Jesus is, hey, if you see a sin in someone and identifying that sin makes you say, oh, I need to talk to them about it, and that makes you realize, oh, man, I've got a huge problem with this. Jesus is saying, I'm using that whole process to help you recognize the sin in your life. No, you go deal with it. I'll send somebody else along to help that person who is not battling that same sin, who has had victory over that sin. I'll send them to help in that area. You go get right with me. You repent. You get straight with God. So how does Jesus want us to judge each other within the church? Without condemnation and to judge without hypocrisy. He shifts gears a little bit, but everything in Matthew 7 is really about the same topic. And I'll share this with you. You can study it at home this week. But Matthew 7 has so many verses that are pulled out of context on their own. But they're all about the same issue of judging and discerning wisely. So just as the apostle Paul told us not to judge those outside the church, Jesus is going to tell us the same thing in a little more vivid and blunt manner. In verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. What's the principle? The principle is don't interact with those who are not followers of Jesus and expect them to interact with you as though they are followers of Jesus. Don't expect a non-believer to respond as a believer would. Non-believers have one need. They have one need, one need, to be born again. That's what they need. They don't need all their questions answered. They don't need evidence. They need to be born again. They cannot understand or perceive of the deep things of God when they haven't even made the initial step of faith to believe in Him. They have one need, to be born again. A.W. Tozer says, the, the person who has just been saved has more profound insight into the nature of reality than the wisest, smartest person who is not saved because the person who is saved is on the inside looking out. The person who is not is on the outside looking in. They do not have the perspective to perceive of the things of God without that change in location, being born again. Jesus wants us to understand that if a person is a closed door to the gospel, like they just do not want to hear it, you're setting yourself up for rejection and maybe worse by continuing to just pour time and effort and emotional energy into them. If they're a closed door, Jesus says, just remember, you you can't save anybody. 
You can't save anybody. The word says, unless the Father draws them first. Unless the Father draws them first. When a person is close to the gospel, what do you do? You pray. You pray that God would open them up, that he would break them open. You don't enter into debates about the age of the earth. You don't enter into debates about evolution and morality and other topics. The picture Jesus gives is pigs trampling pearls under their feet in the mud, treating the truth as refuse because they cannot perceive the treasure that they are being offered. They can't perceive it. And Jesus says, listen, you're going to come away damaged if you keep pouring your time, effort, energy, and emotions into a person who is completely close to the gospel. He said that it's going to harm you. It's going to demotivate you. It's going to depress you. It's going to discourage you. What you need to do is you need to pull away and pray. Pray that the Father would draw him, and he'll let you know when he is, and then you can go back again, try again. My pastor used to tell all of us who are working at this church to always ask one question. Here's the question. Can I minister to this person? Can I minister to this person? You know, that was, that was so wise because when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone, that's the only question. The question is not, are they willing to have a conversation with me? Are they willing to meet with me? Will they give me their time? The question is, can I minister to this person? And can I share with you honestly, the same principle applies even to those who are believers. There are believers who are experiencing chaos in their lives and you can meet with them and say, here's what the word of God says. Here's what you need to do. Meet them next time. Same sad story, tears and everything. Have you changed anything? No. Next week, no, I haven't changed anything. I haven't changed anything. You need to have the wisdom to realize, I can't minister to this person. I can't minister to them. They'll take as much time as I'll give them. They'll bleed me dry emotionally till I'm exhausted. But if you can't minister to them, you're wasting your time. And I don't mean that to sound cold. I mean that because there are people you can minister to. And those are the people you should be ministering to. But don't pour yourself out. Don't empty yourself for someone who is not thirsty. There's no point. There's no point. There are some people you cannot minister to. So you pray for them. You pray. Jesus says if you don't do that, if you don't discern, if you don't judge wisely, you'll end up giving your treasure to pigs. And they'll trample all over them. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Here's the paraphrased version. If you engage with an idiot, you will end up looking like an idiot too. Solomon says that. He says, if you appeal to the morals of a person who has no moral authority in their life, it's not going to go well for you. You can't have a conversation with morality about someone who defines morality themselves. You just, you just can't. There's not the foundation there for that conversation. In the book of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul preaching to the Jews in a city called Antioch about Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. He's helping them understand that Jesus was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And this is what it says. This is the response of the Jewish leaders when many Jews began following Jesus. It says, but when the Jews, so the Jewish leaders, saw the multitudes, all these Jews who are becoming Christians, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Well, what's your takeaway from that? The takeaway is the, these are people who claim that their entire lives are about the truth. 
living for the truth, living out the truth. But they're completely entrenched in their view. They're unwilling to genuinely pursue the truth to the point where they will blaspheme God and contradict themselves to defend their position. They're not open. And here's what I know. I know Paul didn't ask if he could sit down with them for a few days and talk. Paul kept ministering to those people who were responding to the gospel because he could discern the difference between those who were thirsty and those who had no interest in the truth at all. He could discern the difference. Jesus said, don't waste your time with people like that. They're not ready for the truth, and it won't matter how you present it to them. If they're not ready, they're not ready. You pray that the Father makes them ready. Let's be really blunt here. JW's Mormons at your door, be wise. They are not leaving your home converted. Have you figured that out yet? They are not leaving your home converted. They're just not. And to underscore this point, if a Mormon ever comes to you, tell them that you'll talk with them if they take off their tie. They will leave (laughs) rather than take off their tie. They're not allowed to take off their tie. I'm not joking, 100%. (laughs) You're not going to convert them. So, I mean, I've I've done it. I've done the thing. I've, I've brought them into my house. I've showed them the word. And, and nothing, nothing happens because they're closed off to the truth. They're not open yet. So just be wise. Pray for them. Pray that they would become broken so that they can become open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So how do we know how to judge without condemning? How, how do we know when we've got a plank in our own eye? How do we know whether we're wasting our time ministering to a person? Jesus doesn't simply tell us. He instructs us. He commands us in verse 7. You might want to underline, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Remember I said verses get taken out of context all the time. I'm sure most of you have heard these verses shared as though it's about salvation. Although it's about asking for things from God and getting them from him. But, but in this context, you understand that it's clear Jesus is saying this verse is speaking about asking for wisdom and discernment to judge wisely. And he doesn't just say you have the option. He commands us, ask, seek, knock. And in the original Greek, the tense there is active. So it's keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, do it continually, all the time. Ask for wisdom. And I think God doesn't just give wisdom in like a lump sum payment because here's what I know about you and I. In a very short period of time, we would begin to take credit for that wisdom. We would begin to believe it's us. I'm the wise one here judging wisely. But Jesus says, no, you need to ask all the time, situation by situation, for fresh wisdom, insight, and discernment, and I promise I'll give it to you if you'll ask. Because when we do that, that's us acknowledging, Father, my wisdom is insufficient for the task. I don't know a person's heart. You do. Would you empower me to judge wisely? Absolutely, says God. Absolutely. I'm not going to leave you on your own. Ask for wisdom. Pray. Acknowledge that you need God. Remember James 1.5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. He gives generously. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. If you think you already have wisdom, you lack wisdom. So ask for it, okay? (laughs) 
Jesus continues with the humor in verse 9. He says, or what man is there among you? He's saying, so if you doubt that I'll give it to you, what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. He's like, there's no dad in the world who's going to give his kid a bun and secretly put a rock in there like, it's hilarious, he's going to break his teeth. It's like, no, nobody does that. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Yeah, your, your pet fish is uh, in your tank in your bedroom. <laughs> Cobra. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> classic, classic. There's no dad who does that. And then he says, if you then, and you might want to underline, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I had you underline being evil because I love the flippancy with which Jesus makes this enormous statement. He's so casual. His vibe is, I mean, I think we all understand that you're all evil, right? I mean, we're all on the same page here. So if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, don't you think your holy, totally the opposite of evil, heavenly father, knows how to give great gifts? And we call this the doctrine of total depravity. It's the belief in Christianity that man is born evil, And Jesus states very clearly that exact truth right here. And if you find that hard to swallow, you have not been paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Because as Jesus unpacks what sin is, when Jesus says things like, hey, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, he who is angry at his brother, who calls another person an idiot, is guilty of the same sin as murder because it comes from the same place in the heart. When Jesus says, hey, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who lusts after a woman or a man has already committed adultery, comes from the same place in the heart. If you've read that and still think you were born good, you're not paying attention. Jesus says this at this point in the Sermon on the Mount because he's at the place in the sermon where nobody should be arguing this point. He's pretty much established the fact. You're evil, you're evil, you're evil, you're evil, you're evil. All on the same page here, right? Okay, excellent. We're all at the place of understanding I'm not a born good kind of person. And as we said earlier, the purpose of all that is to drive us to Jesus, the only one who can make us good, who's been good enough for us. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul reminds us that nobody has ever given a better gift than our Heavenly Father. He says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus is saying, guys, you have a loving heavenly father. If you ask him for wisdom so that you can judge wisely, he'll give it to you. You know how to give your kids good gifts. And you're evil. Your heavenly father is good. So he knows how to give good gifts. And now we reach what's commonly referred to as the golden rule. And I want you to remember the context. Jesus is speaking about judging others within the church. He tells us, as you judge, as you're doing that, remember this. Verse 12, therefore, so understanding everything that I've just shared with you, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Because you can sum up the law and the prophets with this. Treat other people the way you would like to be treated. Later on in his ministry, Jesus would say, that's the second greatest commandment. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Judge other believers the way you would like them to judge you. This is, this is huge. Now, here's what you can't do. You can't say, well, uh, I wouldn't want anyone to ever judge me, so I just won't judge anyone. That's not really an option, okay? What should we all want? I think if we're honest, we would want to be confronted in love. 
I think we'd all agree that that means being confronted with discretion. So it means after church, you know, we don't grab the other person and say it in a loud voice. I couldn't help noticing what was on your phone the other day. So everybody, look at this phone. Look here, look at this. He says, do it with discretion. Do it in an honoring way. And, and here, here's the principle. I can't overstate this enough. Even the backslidden believer is worthy of honor because of their value to Jesus Christ. So he says, you need to treat your, each other with honor even as you confront sin in each other's lives. It's not like because they're sinning, they now have a lower value within the church, right? Treat them with honor and deal with the sin. Treat the person with honor. I think we'd all want to be confronted with the truth of God's word. I, I, I know for me, I, I wouldn't want to hear somebody just say, I don't think you should be doing this. I, I would like to be shown something in the word of God or appealed to with the word of God. And I think I wouldn't want my motives judged, but I would want the sin judged. And I would want to be judged with the goal of restoration. I'd want to be judged with the goal of restoration. That's what I'd want. Later on in his ministry, Jesus would say it like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he say that? Because we're all experts at loving ourselves. We're already great at that. So he gives us a reference we can all work with. And this is generally referred to, even outside Christianity, as the golden rule. Treat others the way you'd like to be treated. And you, pro- you might have heard this, but it's been correctly pointed out, Jesus is not the first person to espouse this idea. First person to really talk about this is Confucius in ancient China in about the 5th century B.C. It's also in the Jewish Talmud, which predated Jesus, came along during the Old Testament time. It was the teaching from several rabbis that was codified in a book called the Talmud, a compilation of their teachings that were extra-biblical, not part of the Bible. But both Confucius and everybody else philosophically would always apply this principle in the negative passive tense. So they would say, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. So it's negative and it's passive. It's about not doing things. Jesus was the first to imply the positive, active imperative. He was the first to say, no, be active. Do for others what you would want other people to do for you. Do for them. And the difference is Jesus is saying, listen, the, solu- the golden rule is not then go live in total isolation so that you never do anything negative to people. He says, no, go and do. Go and be to other people who you would want them to be to you. He makes it active and he makes it positive. Everything that Jesus is teaching blends together around this same subject of the same theme of judging wisely. If you want to be treated mercifully, man, you better treat other people mercifully. If you don't want your sin paraded through the gossip mill, man, you better not participate in the gossip mill parading other people's sins. Ouch. That one hurts even me. Can you imagine if we actually live by this? Imagine if we actually live by this. This would be radical. You know, I'll never forget a conversation I had with this one pastor I worked for, same pastor who told us to ask, can I minister to this person? Uh, there was a, a team member on our staff who had to be fired. Uh, he, he was incompetent. Great guy, loved Jesus. He was incompetent. Hadn't even been on staff a year. And our pastor was sharing, and he said, you know, I'm going to give him uh, three months severance pay, three full months severance pay. I remember saying, like, what? Like, he hasn't even been here a year. Don't you think that's a little over-the-top generous? And he said, Jeff, listen. Paul says in Galatians, consider yourself lest you also fall into temptation. And he said, so I am going to treat this person the way I would want to be treated 
if I made a mistake in my job and lost my job. He said, and I wouldn't want to worry about how I'm going to feed my family while I look for my next job. So I'm going to do this for him as well. And it floored me because I realized that that's what it means to actually think through how would I want to be treated in this situation and then actually go and do that for a person. And the result will be over-the-top <laughs> generosity and mercy and kindness and grace and patience towards each other because that's really the way that we would all like to be treated. It's radical. You know, it's understanding that we all love justice when we're the judge. Isn't that the truth, right? We're all passionate about justice when we're the judge. But we all love mercy when we're the perpetrator. We love mercy when we're the perpetrator. Write this down. Part of spiritual maturity is understanding that sooner or later, I will be the perpetrator. Sooner or later, I will be the perpetrator. And you know what? I will reap what I've sown. I'll reap what I've sown. It's not an effective strategy to say, you know, I'm going to judge harshly under the assumption that I will never need to be judged. Oh, man, that, that's a mistake. I know I keep saying this, but the Sermon on the Mount is such a masterpiece. It's concise. Its pacing and balance is perfect. Because at this point in his message, it's as though Jesus can sense the danger in all of us hearing what he said and then going to an extreme with grace. He can sense the danger of us taking this and saying, let's just not judge anything. You know, let's just go super extreme grace. Everyone's business is their own business. I don't know their heart. Let's just not deal with anything. He can sense that danger. So Jesus brings balance back to the urgency of the issue of judging by saying this in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult, the word actually means confined, is the way which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Lest we become cowards who are too scared to confront each other on the issue of sin, intimidated by those who would say, grace, 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 stop being so judgmental. There's room in the kingdom for everybody. Lest we fall into political correctness and start agreeing with those who say he's a loving God so I'm, sh- I'm sure nobody's going to hell I'm sure there are many ways to get to God who, who am I to judge Jesus said I am the way I am the gate I am the door and it's a narrow small door he says remember that open-minded broad easy comfortable is the road that leads to destruction Man, if you find yourself on a crowded road in life, going the same way as everybody else, you might want to check where you're headed. But when you find yourself on a different path, Jesus says, don't look at that. Don't look at your life and think, I must be missing something because everybody else is doing things differently. He says, yeah, they're on the broad road that leads to destruction. It's not the road that you want to be on. And Jesus highlights this. In verse 14, he tells us that the way that leads to life is difficult. It's confined. Only a few find it. Being a part of a church, being a part of a family of believers means accepting the responsibility of judging other believers. Here's what it means. It means loving each other enough to say, you have to stay on the narrow road. 
you have to. I love you enough to help you stay on the narrow road. But even more difficult, being a part of a, a real church means embracing being judged yourself by other believers. Understanding the truth that, listen, I, I would rather have an awkward conversation and be kept on the narrow road than have people see me going onto the broad road and say, man, grace, grace, grace. Please stop me if you see me going off the narrow road. I don't want to do that. It means understanding that Jesus being honored in my life, he's more important than my ego or my pride or my feelings. It's understanding that Jesus being honored is more important than my fear of being accused of being judgmental. Honoring Jesus is more important. It's a narrow, difficult road, especially when, I'm going to be very blunt, there are churches everywhere who will tell you what you want to hear, that it's nobody's place to judge you. You don't have to look very far in the area that we live to find a church that will preach that. There are on-ramps to the easy, broad road everywhere. Everywhere. But on the flip side, when you decide that living for Jesus is more important than anything else, man, there's a freedom in a life that comes with that. And you might think, freedom in life? I mean, uh, being judged by other people, having my sin pointed out? That doesn't sound like freedom and life and joy. Let me tell you why it's wonderful. Because what would you really prefer? A difficult conversation with another believer who loves you and cares about you? or the devastating consequences of sin? Which would you rather have? Which would you rather have? Sign me up for the difficult conversation. Seriously, sign me up. I'd rather live free. Man, I I have lost people from this church over this issue, over this issue. One person loves Jesus, dating a non-believer in a serious long-term relationship with a non-believer. You can't do that. You can't do that. Don't do that to yourself. The word is black and white about that. Uh, I just think, just think that God's making an exception for me. That was the answer. Man, I don't judge to be judgmental. I judge because I couldn't live with myself as a pastor, as a believer, seeing the danger, Watching this person marry a non-believer and then watching that person live in heartbreak as they can't share the single most important thing in their life in common with their spouse. Couldn't do that. Couldn't live with myself. I can live with them leaving. I can't live with knowing the danger and not loving that person enough to point it out. I'll, I'll stand before God one day and live with that. that. That's the heart God wants us to have on this issue. He says, man, love each other enough Love each other enough to deal with it. Man, I, I just think how often in church in the area of marriage does, does that happen because nobody, nobody wants to be perceived as judgmental. Nobody steps up and says, man, there's, there's danger and I love you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you mess up something that could be so good in your life. Please stop. Please stop. Come back. When you have whole churches that teach the broad road, you know, you have a false gospel. And that's what Jesus is going to address next. He's going to shift from judging other believers to judging teachers, preachers, prophets, and pastors. So we're just going to skip that and go to chapter 8. I'm just messing with you guys. I'm just messing with you guys. So how do you do that? We're going to find out how you do that next week. Only a, a couple more quick points and then we're done. Write this down, though. 
the word of God, the word of God, the words of Jesus have authority over us. The word of God has authority over us. And that's important because when I'm confronted by the word of God, it has authority over me. If the word of God identifies sin in my life, it doesn't matter if it's being brought to me by an older, wiser saint or by a child. It doesn't matter. It is not the messenger that I am submitting to. It's the word of God that I am submitting to. And I say that because I want each of us to understand that within the church, believer to believer, we don't have the right to say to each other when we are confronted by our sin in the word of God, we don't have the right to tell that other believer, you don't have that place in my life. We don't have that right. They're not coming to us saying, submit to me. They're coming to us saying, submit to the word of God. When we say no, we're saying, I will not submit to the word of God. And if you can't get used to the idea of God using imperfect messengers, you might need to leave the church. Because <laughs> you're not going to find one where he has perfect messengers. God uses kids. God sometimes uses the people we would least desire him to use in our lives to bring out the truth. Just to test us and find out, hey, hey, uh, are you submitting to me? Or are you just submitting to a person? It's the word of God that has authority. And that's what I love about the way God designed the church and the faith. He didn't design it so that, you know, hey, Jeff, you're the pastor. So no one can ever confront you except someone who's like a super pastor. You know, he says, no, the word of God has authority over you and you and you and me. If the word of God points out sin in your life, you have to submit. If it points out sin in my life, I have to submit. Doesn't matter who the messenger is. God's word is the authority. Secondly, what do we do if we confront someone over his or her sin and, and they don't receive it? You just blow us off. The reference is on your sheet, not the verse, but the reference. You can look, look it up later. Matthew 18 has a protocol from Jesus for us to follow within the church. It's a protocol for handling things in the church, in each local church, uh, when someone sins against you. But it applies to all sin. Let me just read it to you. It says this. This is the protocol. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, if your brother or sister in Christ is in sin, we might say, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So here we see that discretion again. Go to them privately. Point it out. Bring it into the light. Say, I, I, I see this, and, and I can't help but notice that the word of God doesn't encourage this kind of behavior. You go to them directly and privately and discreetly. Here's what you don't do. You don't send the issue up the church prayer flagpole. You know, Can you shoot out an email, Pastor Jeff? Just let everybody know. I'm praying whether or not I should confront my husband about his sin directly and discreetly privately don't do that don't go to 10 people you know and and ask the 10 people i just i just want some wise counsel should i confront this person privately discretion's important to me He he says listen you don't need to consult anybody else there's an issue if you know it's sin it's identified in the word of god you go directly to the person you go directly to the person that's step one if he hears you, you've gained your brother. So if they receive it, hey man, there's restoration. Praise Jesus. But if he will not hear, here's the next step. Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. I don't encourage you to make the, those people seasoned saints, leaders in the church. He says the next step is take two or three people with you. Again, you only fill those people in on the situation. Take him with you so that they're able to witness what's happening. The conversation's happening. You weren't rude. You weren't impolite. You were honest and direct. 
and deal with it. I said, man, that might settle it. If it still doesn't work, you've involved two or three mature believers. Uh, Now it gets interesting. Next step. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Man, that would be a lively Sunday. Quick announcement as we're taking the offering. Just uh, just an unrepentant sinner I want to draw your attention to. Would you stand up for me, please? Yeah, in the back. Just stand on your chair, yeah. <coughs> but Jesus is he's being totally serious. He's saying if you have a believer in your church who won't repent of their sin, refuses to respond to being confronted by church leaders, Jesus says, stand up in front of the church, let the church know. Let him know. And you might think, man, that's harsh. It's not harsh. He's gone through two steps already. He's been confronted privately. He's been confronted with a small group. Here's the principle you need to understand. Jesus is not letting it go. There's no scenario here where Jesus says, if they won't respond, eh, what are you going to do? It's not any of the options. He says, tell it to the church. And that's awkward because here's what we know in today's age of churches. If that happened, I said, hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. I'm going to need to tell the church about, you know, your, your lack of repentance in this area this Sunday. That person's not coming to church that Sunday or any other Sunday because they could just go to another church down the street. But I think it would still accomplish some really important things because here's what it would do. It would remind all of us we represent Jesus as a community. We represent Jesus. That is more important than anything else. We represent Jesus. His honor is more important than your honor. It's more important than my honor. It would remind us of that. It would also remind all of us that, hey, as a church, if you are a member of the church, if this is your home church, we need to remember... Jesus has called us not to tolerate sin in each other. When he talks about being patient and gracious, he's not talking about being patient and gracious with sin. He's saying deal with it in love as you would want it dealt with if you were the offender, but deal with it. And I think secondly, it would keep the infection from spreading throughout the church. You know what I've realized is at any given moment in every church, there are vulnerable people. There are new believers. There are baby Christians. There's people who've been Christians their whole life, but they've never read their Bible. And so they're really still at a kindergarten level in their faith. There's people who are hurting, who are vulnerable. There's people who are susceptible to gossip. Man, we have no idea the damage it does when in front of those people we allow a person to say, I am a Christian, live in rebellion to God, and by not dealing with it, without words, say, that's okay, you can do that. You can be a Christian and just live in rebellion to God. We have no idea the damage that does. I know multiple families. I know every Christian school is not like this, but I know multiple families who pulled their kids out of Christian schools because of how confusing it was to their children that they were seeing Christians behave worse than non-Christians in public school. And they pulled their kids out and put them in public school because they said, at least the people who are acting like non-believers call themselves non-believers. That's easier for my kids to understand than seeing believers act like non-believers and continue to call themselves believers. That's why Jesus says, don't let it happen in your churches that you all turn a blind eye to the person who calls themselves a believer and acts like a non-believer. He says it does damage to people. It damages people. It keeps it simple and clear when we actually treat sin like it's sin, like it's something we don't want in ourselves or in others. That's how Jesus feels. As a final step, Jesus says this. He says, but if he refuses even to hear the church, 
Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And and this might be different than you think because Jesus says, if he still won't repent after all that, he says, treat him like an unbeliever. Treat him like an unbeliever. And so what what do we do with that? It's less harsh than you think because Jesus is saying, at that point, you probably need to assume they're not a believer. And now what you're doing is you're casting your pearl before swine. You're expecting someone who's not a believer to respond like a believer. You're expecting someone to be convicted by the Holy Spirit who probably doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them because they're probably not saved. And how do you deal with a non-believer? Well, you share the gospel with them. You pray with them. You don't judge their sins because the Bible says God does that. You don't expect them to act like a believer. And man, they're welcome in the church. They're welcome in the church. But at that point, everybody knows, man, we're considering this person to not be a believer. And so we're going to go to work sharing Jesus with them, praying that they will find Jesus. In conclusion, let's remember that we're all sowing something. We're all sowing something into every area of our life. And we will all reap what we sow. And I think all of us should desire to be in the place where when we hear that, it fills us with joy because we know that we're sowing good things rather than dread and fear, right? What? <laughs> Nobody told me this. <laughs> so, so as we spend some time worshiping and praying, maybe just ask the Lord to show you any places where you might be sowing some things that you don't, you don't want to reap into your kids, into your marriage, into your job, into your work. And let's ask him to help us patiently and diligently sow the right kind of seeds. And then I want to challenge you to commit to two things. If this is your home church, if this is your home church, I want to challenge you to commit within yourself to love other believers enough to help them see if they are on a destructive path, trapped in sin. I'm asking you to love other believers enough, including me. Love them enough to do that. Don't cop out and say, I'm not a confrontational person. The honor of Jesus is more important. That person is more important. Love them enough to do that. And then secondly, would you you humble yourself and commit to receive correction from other believers, to welcome it, to embrace it. Have the heart that says, man, two things. I don't want to end up on the broad road. I want to stay on the narrow path that leads to life. And secondly, I don't want to dishonor Jesus. I'd rather be embarrassed than dishonor Jesus. I'd rather have an awkward conversation than dishonor Jesus because that's the most important thing in my life. Commit to doing those two things, as difficult as they may be. Let's, let's love each other enough to help each other. It's not being judgmental in the wrong sense. It's caring enough about each other to say, I see you heading towards disaster, and I love you enough to tell you, I can see it coming. I can see it coming. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you that you love us enough as a good father to tell us how the world works that we're all sowing and we're all reaping all the time. Thank you for for telling us that and not leaving us clueless. And then thank you for your word, which tells us how to sow well, how to sow good things in our marriages, in our family, in our children, in our work, in our school. You've told us how to sow good things. Father, we want to reap what we sow in a good way. So right now we pray as as we seek you this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate to us any areas where we're sowing things that we we don't want to reap later on. Draw them to our attention so that we can change. 
while we have time to change so that we don't realize we've sowed the wrong seeds only when we're reaping. Tell us now while we can change, God. Show us. And then in the area of judging, God, we just confess that the holiness and the honor of you and your name is more important than anything. It's more important than anything. Would we care about your honor, God, enough to deal with sin in others and in ourselves? Would we care about your honor enough to humble ourselves and receive correction from your word and from others, no matter who the messenger is? And Father, may we love each other enough to help each other stay on the right path, stay off of the path that leads to destruction.